Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. It was the 20-minute ride home. I was just praying, God, am I going to die? And I ran into our apartment, and I closed the door to our bedroom, and I lost it just laying there on the bed. And I remember praying Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. But I I went with, God, I'm glad you're my help because I'm never going to ask anybody else for help ever again. I don't know if I can survive it. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Donna Wales on the show. She is an author, and she has written a book detailing her time in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. Donna, can you just introduce yourself to my listeners and let them know a little bit about you? Sure. My name is Donna Wales. I am a Christian wife, mom, um, school teacher, and a domestic abuse survivor. So I started... Um, my parents took me to school to church before, you know, the moment right the, right after I was born, and and ever since we are expected to be in in church and Sunday school and all of the things. And um, my family, in fact, has a history of of ministry. My uncle, my great uncle, was called a lumberjack sky pilot, and mm-hmm. he was actually a. Um, a we used to call them circuit riding preachers right right? the adirondack mountains and the lumberjacks would say that you know if something bad happened was going to happen that you needed a good sky pilot to help you get to pilot your way to heaven and he would show people the way to heaven and so from him and and then my grandparents and my mom and dad always being in christian service I went to Christian University and and studied business education and then began serving serving the Lord like you know like I had expected. Right. So that's kind of right. how I became. 
So how, how were your feelings toward, I mean, I mean, that's a really interesting story on itself and would probably make for a good book is being a circuit riding preacher, going to different lumberjacks around the mountains, you know, but um, what was your experiences as a, as a little girl growing up in the movement and being part of a pretty unique denomination? Um, did you, do you feel like it was different at the time? Did you, did it feel just like home because it's all you knew? What was your initial emotions? It was it felt like home because that's all I knew at the time. Um, there were, you know, it was, it was expected for us to grow up and to, and to serve God and to, to follow his teachings in the Bible and to, um, you know, Christian camp and, you know, following the Lord in, in baptism and, and, um, serving the Lord in the calling that, that he expected, you know, in whatever calling that your life was, was to glorify God in whatever, you know, in whatever you did. And so that's kind of where I went into the um, Christian school ministry. And then um, my dad was one who said, well, but, if you're going to teach, you really should have a state teaching certificate just in case, right. you know, something happens. It's, it's not always required by the Christian schools, but right. you know, if something were to happen and I disagreed, but at the same time, older and wiser won out. And so I did. And, and now I'm really happy I did because I'm teaching at a, at a public school. So. Sure. Um, did you feel, so, I mean, it's it's honestly sometimes a rarity for there to be an option for women in the IFB to find some kind of career path or to actually pursue what they want to do in like a working environment. Did you ever feel limited in when you were being brought up because of your gender or because of, you know, being a woman in the IFB? Um, so here's a good story for you. My um, my mom was on the school committee and my mom is a very strong it's a very strong personality. Um, my grandmother, my grandfather divorced her back in the time when no one got divorced mm. in the fifties and sixties. Um, and so my mom grew up with a very strong role model and I did too. And so, um, we had the, the meeting of, you know, you're going, your daughter's going into high school. Here's what, you know, here's what we think she should do. And, well, she's not very bright and I'm sitting there listening to this, of course, hmm. you know, she's not very bright, but she'd be a really good secretary or, you know, a wife and a mom, you know, and that, that was kind of my, my expectate, that was his expectation for me. And I remember coming out of that meeting telling my mom that, that I wanted more to life than just the little farm community. And, um, you know, I, okay, so I might not be very bright, but I, but I deserved the opportunity to take algebra two or chemistry or whatever else I I wanted. And, you know, sort of a, who was he to be my Holy spirit? You know, how does he know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? Because I sure don't. And, um, and so my parents agreed and I got to take algebra two and chemistry and all of the other things that I wanted. But, but, very, but like you asked, very, um, 
you know, that was his expectation was that I was going to be a sec, you know, like the church secretary or something, and then have the, the 2.5 children and the dog and the cat and the farm. And that was going to be it, but that's not where life has taken me. Sure. So, so what was the first time, obviously you went all the way through university in this world. When's the first time you ever got a feeling like, you know, something's not quite right or, you know, something's a little bit off here. So my very first job at a Christian school and they, you know, remain nameless, but the Christian school, there was a, I was there as a single, as a, you know, as a single school teacher and they had helped me find a, a place to live with an older lady. And I really liked her and it was very nice. And, but um, one of the ladies who taught with me had nothing to do with her teaching, but they cut her hours when her husband left her for another woman. Hmm. And they subsequently divorced. And here's this poor woman trying to raise two teenage children on now half a salary. And then at the end of the year, they decided not to renew her contract because she was divorced and that was against the rules of the church and school. And that just didn't seem right to me. Didn't God, didn't, you know, didn't, this wasn't her fault, right? This, her husband had left her, but yet she was being punished and she lost her job because her husband divorced her. And I thought that had, there had to be something wrong and something there, there had to be some, something wrong with that. But again, I didn't feel like I could say anything because this was my only job too. Right. Yeah. There's not like there's many other options. I mean, once you cross off secretary or school teacher, that's pretty much it. With That is pretty much it. Yeah. Right. So um, tell me just a little bit about, obviously you're working here. Is that where you ended up meeting your husband, your, your first husband or. No. Um, so a traveling singing group came through okay. and like a revival group came to the church and school where I was, where I was teaching. And um, I love to sing and I've always loved to sing, you know, the quiet in the choir right. when I was like 12 and all the way up through. And so um, I auditioned for the traveling singing group, because again, that's one of the things that, that we could do. And um and I was, they picked me, right? But they also liked the fact that my, my degree was in business management and accounting education. And so not only did they want me to sing, but they wanted me to keep the books for the, while they traveled. Got it. Um, and that was not really my dream job, you know, that, that really wasn't. Um, but along the same lines, my senior year of college, there was a, there was an opportunity to go on the Hawaii mission team. And, um, I'm kind of giving you the plot of the book at this point, but, um, I went on the Hawaii mission team and that mission team really changed my life because growing up, in our church, we always had the, um, 
you know, you have the obligatory missions emphasis week. And it seems like we they picked the most miserable of the missionaries to come. And, right. you know, this this one missionary from I forget where in the, in South America, you know, he had to eat monkey brains and he did this. And, you know, it was just terrible. And I thought, wow, if that's serving God, then count me out. You know, but I went on this mission team after my senior year of college and I met this pastor and his wife and they lived in this little tiny three bedroom apartment in Honolulu, Hawaii. And they're um, there. They called it a patio or lanai was maybe three feet wide and about six feet long. And that was, you know, and the pastor was working as a night manager of one of the condominium um, buildings in Waikiki and just, I couldn't imagine, you know, they had three children and in the three bedrooms, one of them was the church office, right? And the other two were the kids and the parents. And those people were happy. They were, they were so excited and, look, we get to serve God and we're, you know, telling people about God and we're witnessing and we're bringing people to church. And that summer we drove around and part of the mission team. So me and there were two other people and we drove around in this old VW van with a beat up um, pulpit, a, an old piano, you know, the upright kind and a box of hymnals. And we laughed about have church will travel and that summer really changed my life because those people were so happy serving God that I came back willing to give up my dream of, you know, maybe I wasn't going to be a Christian school teacher. Maybe I'll be an accountant or a business or whatever. Right. And I got hired in a Christian school. And um, so the second summer after, after I had taught a year, that revival team came through and they offered me that position, but I had met someone in the Christian school there in Hawaii who had offered me a job. So I really had two different opportunities. And I remember going to my pastor going, look, I have these two opportunities. How do I, how do I pick? And his words to me were, well, if one was sin, I could help you more, but I really, you know, short of fasting and praying, you know, that's all I can recommend. So I chose Hawaii and I chose the Christian school. And that's where I met my hus- my first husband. Um, we met at a church picnic. I shared my Bible with him as the minister was giving the the message after the, the food and all of the games and stuff. Right. And he made a profession of faith that day. And, um, we hung out and we, you know, got to know one another. And um, there is this school of thought, as you know, about courting instead of, you know, instead of dating, people would court to marriage. And after about six months, we decided to get married. Wow. Obviously, you kind of allude to the fact that there was like a lot of pressure, whether it was self-imposed or, you know, by just being in that kind of church environment. Um, did you feel like you, did you feel at the time, like you really knew him? Like, did you feel like, Oh, I, I really know, you know, everything I need to know, or was it more of a, we need to get to this, 
you know, milestone or this point? Um, I didn't really feel like I knew him very well at all, but, um, he was in the Navy and he was going to be out to sea for six months. And I knew that if you're not married, then there's no information whatsoever. Hmm. Like the Navy doesn't communicate anything with just the significant other. Even if you're engaged, you don't get any information, but if you're married, then, you know, they will, there will, there is some communication allowed between husband and wife and that kind of thing. Hmm. So I think that was, again, part of the pressure. Right. Um, and those Bible verses about, uh, was it First Corinthians? You know, it's better to marry than to burn with, you know, with passion kind of thing. So I think that there was a lot of pressure and I didn't know him very well. But um, one of the things that I've learned, though, is that, um, and, and I had to come to terms with, is that no one wears a sign that says I'm going to be an abuser. Right. Yeah, right. That's and so you important. really, you know, and as much as I want to say, how come I didn't know this, you know, that, that wasn't a, you know, that, that's not, it's not a fair question, right. I'm making myself the Holy spirit and, and I, you know, you can't, God doesn't give us that ability to, to see into someone else's heart and mind. Yeah. No. And that's a, that's a key thing. I, every time someone says something like that, I I like to stop right there because I think it's important. A lot of people I know struggle with guilt of why didn't I realize, why didn't I notice, you know, how could I be so dumb? You know, and it's, it's the thing is, is that people get away with this sort of thing because they're good at masking it. And the, the fact, the fact that this stuff happens is a result of them being able to be deceitful or cover it or act like there's something else. Um, so what was kind of the first time you saw a sign that something was wrong? Was it before the wedding? Was it all good until after the wedding? When did you notice something was a little bit off? So it was all good until after the wedding. And even after that, there were, you know, it was mostly good, but, um, there were some, some habits of, um, the, am I allowed to say sex addiction? Right. Um, you know, but there were some habits of, that I noticed that were like pornography Mm -hmm. and, and sex addiction and things like, um, just, I would walk by his computer and he would shut the the tab or whatever that he was on and grab a pillow and put it over his lap or, you know, things yeah, like that, that, right. that, you know, that just weren't what I thought. And then expecting me to behave like whatever he had seen, yeah you know, and when I tried to say, Hey, you know, I don't think this is, this isn't right. This bothers me. Right. Um, but there's that inner struggle, right? Because of the, the fundamental Baptist kind of, you know, the wife is in subjection to her husband, right? And she needs to follow his lead as the head of the house. But, you know, and then 
I couldn't tell you how many times I heard the voice, the the verse about marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. Right. Um, but that's not an excuse for the abuse that I, that I took with, you know, being bashed with, with that particular Bible verse. Right. So uh, a lot of the abuse initially was more the verbal, you know, act like this, do this, that kind of manipulative kind of. Abuse. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And then it, um, it snowballed into um, more of the sexual and verbal, emotional kind of abuse. Hmm. Right. Um, did you have anybody at the time that you felt comfortable reaching out to about it? Or was it something you just kept to yourself and with him, obviously. Well, so I don't even remember what our pastor had preached about, but it was a, I'm, I'm assuming that it was a message about marriage. And, I, you know, I don't, again, I don't remember, but I remember that the Lord really spoke to my heart and I needed to go pray at the altar. You know, just, just, I needed some time with just God and me at the, at the altar in the front of the church. And he and I had been kind of accepted into the inner circle of the church. And you know what I mean, right? The, the, you have the pastor and the deacons wives and, you know, and the whole thing. And so we had, I was teaching in their patch the pirate club and all the different, you know, teaching the, teaching the teachers how to more efficiently give their lessons and all those things. And I really felt like I needed time to just, you know, just please pray with me. I have this right. request. And I whispered a couple of just what I thought were, you know, tip of the iceberg kinds of things. Yeah. And the pastor prayed with me and I didn't think anything more about it, you know, because you pray at the altar, you leave it with God and then you, you know, you cast your burden on the Lord and he takes it and you don't take it back. Right. You, you walk away. And, but after everyone left, he called my then husband into his office and I don't know what they discussed, but whatever it was, when he came out, I could see the rage on his face and he looked at me and he said, get in the car, buckle up. We're leaving. And I don't think up to that point I had ever been so scared in my life, but he peeled out of the gravel in the church parking lot. And then he drove like 80 miles an hour and then down to 20 and 80 miles an hour. And we'd run up on somebody and he hit the brakes and I'm holding on to the handles for dear life. And he's looking at me going, that's what you get for sharing what was supposed to be just between us. And it was the 20 minute ride home that I just, I was just praying, God, you know, are you going to, am I going to die? Cause this is, you know, and I ran into our apartment and I closed the door to our bedroom and I lost it just laying there on the bed. And I remember praying um, Psalm 121, one of my favorite Psalms. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. But I, I went with, God, I'm glad you're my help because I'm never going to ask anybody else for help ever again. No. I don't know if I can survive it. And that's where I left it. You know, I, 
I didn't dare ask for help at that point anymore, ever again. One thing that's come up a lot in the last couple episodes of the show has just been how people respond to when you come with them, you come to them with information like this. And, you know, I think your pastor probably felt he was doing the right thing, you know, addressing it and bring it up. But also like when I hear that, you know, after having talked to so many people that have experienced this sort of thing, I'm thinking, Oh no, like this isn't the way to address it because it's going to ramp up everything else for you when you get home. It was, it was and, terrible. Yeah. And, and so just really quick, just looking back hindsight 2020 and knowing what you know now, what do you wish would have happened if you had in a perfect world went to the pastor and told him this and he could have addressed it differently what would you have wanted him to do in hindsight um you know i'm not sure but um there's one more incident where i went to a pastor and this one i'm not sure what that pastor would have done but but a different pastor because we changed churches after that because he was my ex-husband now is humiliated so we couldn't attend there anymore so we went to a different church and um this pastor actually um after what the military detectives were calling simple assault and domestic violence mm-hmm. this pastor called me And he told me that if I didn't take my now ex-husband back, that they they were going to discipline me out of the church. And what I said to him was, but, but he tried to kill me, you know? So what I was looking for was, you know, pray with me, pray that God keeps me safe because this guy is trying to kill me and, you know, harassing and stalking me and, And at that point, my daughter was less than two. So I'm now a single parent who's living in hiding. My car is being hidden under a tarp in a barn. I'm having to call the military police when I leave the place I was staying. I really could have just used a box of diapers or Mm. someone to pray with me that this, you know, that God would keep me alive, keep me safe. Um, You know, just even a cup of tea with, you know, here are some verses on comfort and um, comfort and, you know, God has grace and God gives hope and he still loves you. You know, those are things that I would have loved to, to hear, not take your abuser back or we're going to discipline you out of the church. What do you think fueled that? type of advice do you think it was just a because I I always sit here and I wonder you know in situations like this why is there such an instant you know taking sides of the abuser and not the person who's being abused um what do you think fuel that do you think it was just a view of the you know men being over women do you think it was um like what, what do you think fueled that kind of thinking and that idea of you need to take them back you need to a, B, and C. Here's what you need to do. Right. Um, well, there was some. So, you know, um, that same pastor had come to the place where I was staying and read Psalm 51 to me and, you know, said, well, you need to confess your sins to God. And um, and so I 
prayed with him because that was one of the reasons that I was allowed to stay there if I agreed to pray with the pastor and confess my sin. And it was one of those, well, but, but I have bruises and, and I, you know, I, um, didn't I do everything I was supposed to, right? I, I made him dinner at the computer when he told me I, you know, I, I idolized the Proverbs 31 woman, right? I, I did, mm-hmm. or I thought I did all the dids yeah. and I didn't do all the didn'ts. And I'm here with bruises. This doesn't work this way. Right. Right. And so, um, so I confessed my sin, you know, because I enabled him, right. Yeah. If we're, if we're using the, the psychological language, right. I, I probably did enable him and, um, there was a person I met playing this silly online computer game who had the nerve to say that perhaps my husband tr- was treating me as a maid with benefits. Hmm. And so at that point that really set off my husband at the time, I must be having a virtual affair with him. And, you know, just this person who cared enough to say, did you ever think that you might be, you know, that this might be a problem? And I really hadn't thought that because I was, if there's a problem between the husband and wife, then obviously it must be me, Right. you know? So, um, but I wasn't having an affair. I wasn't going to run off with him, but it shouldn't have, been, you know, I, I shouldn't be in fear for my life from my husband either, right. you know? So, so, um, it was a difficult, it was a difficult decision. I chose to leave the church. I never did ask if they removed my name from the roles. Hmm. And when you made that decision, was your husband still attending or was he gone at that period of time? Like what was kind of the, how were you able to make that decision? I guess when you were being so closely controlled? Um, I made the decision because I was living in hiding at the home of a friend and it wasn't safe for me to go back to that church at all. Um, It wasn't safe for me to go to the grocery store. You know, the military detectives, the military police detectives assured me that, um, that if he found me that my restraining order would not stop a bullet or a bat. Hmm. I'm curious about that. This is separate from the IFB side, but I know that I read quite a bit about, um, you know, abuse cases all throughout, um, you know, military church um, and the military doesn't have an amazing, it doesn't have an amazing track record with dealing with abuse um, within its, you know, within its different um, bases and things like that. Did you feel that the military took it seriously with um, what was going on? or Because it, it seems like if they were, he wouldn't still be in the same position he was. It seems like it was more just be careful and stay out of his way kind of advice. So the detectives NCIS is real. I didn't know that until I met them. Um, so the NCIS detectives were absolutely fantastic with 
um, helping me, checking up on me, making sure that I was safe. The family service centers and their counselors were amazing. But when the NCIS detectives went to his commander and said, look, he's dangerous. And he, when they arrested him, he told the arresting officers that if he found me, you finish the job. Wow. And they believed him. But his commanding officer did not believe him because I was just a delusional Navy wife and, mm. you know, making up drama. I was really just, you know, having an affair and all this kind of stuff. So it was, and basically what the detectives put in their, in their report was that um, if he hurt me, it would be their fault basically because they recommended him being under like house arrest kind of thing. And his command declined. Wow. So I was in hiding and he was free to do whatever he wished at that point. Right. And at this point, obviously you're living in hiding and in fear, but did you, did you feel at that point that divorce was an option or did you just feel like I need to wait this out and then go back to normal? Um, I had, they had given us two restraining orders already because of the vol- because of his volatility and with the um with the assault and he told them he would try to kill me again so um i had resigned myself that divorce was really my only option that my daughter needed one parent who was alive and sane And I was going to have to be that because there was no way that she could, you know, my ex-husband could not parent. How old was your daughter during this time? She was 20 months old when we, when, yeah, less than two. Yeah. So um, tell me just a little bit about the process of actually leaving. Did you stay in Hawaii after the divorce or did you end up just traveling or what, what happened after that? Okay. So, Um, From Hawaii, the military moves every three years. And so um, he went from Hawaii over to Bremerton, Washington. Okay. To get on a different type of submarine because we decided that it would be better to have a set schedule and the submarine would be in port three months, out of port, you know, out to sea three months. So that would be better for, for raising a child. There would be more stability and, and it was a much better decision. You know, it was, it was more stability. We'd be back on the mainland closer to our families and that kind of thing, or, you know, at least it wouldn't be outrageously expensive to go see our families. So, um, so all of this happened in Washington state, but, um, he played, he had promised me that if we got divorced, that he would use our daughter against me. And he, you know, begged the judge for visitation because he couldn't possibly live without seeing our daughter. And um, so the judge ordered supervised visitation. um, And then we, so she and I stayed in hiding for about close to three months, four months. Um, It was really tough because 
I had to call the military police if I wanted to get anything out of that apartment. And there were three of them would meet me at the apartment. Um, and they opened every closet, every drawer, every, they patted down all of the cushions to make sure that he hadn't set any traps to hurt me. Wow. And I was allowed to feed my cats and grab some clothes or whatever I needed for the baby. And then, and then they walked me back to my car. Wow. Um, so when did you, so how, how long did this go on until you officially completely separated? Um, so our separation started the day that he smashed my face into the glass of our apartment storm door. Um, the, the Navy would not take the keys of the apartment away from him because according to the Navy, it was his apartment. Um, so I could not stay there. Was it, was this military housing? It was military. Okay. It was the public private venture. So, yeah. So you got like a, a an allowance from them to basically stay? Well, no. So his housing allowance covered our place, right. but I was not allowed to stay at that place because it wasn't safe. They right. couldn't take, they wouldn't take his keys. And if he could come and go, then he knew where I was and that got would it. be that would be a problem. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah. So once, you know, completely separating and, you know, I'm, you're sitting there with a, you know, less than two year old baby and, and trying to move forward. Um, tell me a little bit about kind of the, the process of recovery. Cause I think that's an important thing. Yes. There's, there's trauma, but I also want to talk to you about, you know, what did it look like kind of trying to rebuild from that point because you go from, you know, you go from your identity being, you know, the daughter in the IFB to being the wife to now I have to be my own person for the first time. Um, how was that experience and, and what helped you most during that time? I was allowed to leave by the, for the judge because I'm a school teacher and my teaching certificate was from South Carolina and it had lapsed because, well, I was going to stay home with our daughter until she went to kindergarten. Um, and so the judge decided that my, my attorney was able to persuade the judge that in August, August 1st, that I needed to be in South Carolina. So if there was any hope of me getting my teaching certificate renewed and getting a job, because, you know, we don't want add, to add another two people to the, to the welfare roles, right? So this woman has job skills. She just needs a chance to be able to do that. And so he let us go. Um, my parents had a little trailer in South Carolina where, where um, my daughter and I kind of hunkered down for a while. But I remember standing in the kitchen going, what am I having for dinner? Hey, I could have squash. My ex-husband hated squash. I like squash, you know, and just that whole, Yeah, I like onions in my food. I can put garlic and peppers and all the things that he couldn't stand. And I was like, I can eat what I want, you know, and I can cook it and I can, what's my favorite color. And you know, that whole conversation in my head with, wow, I can choose now, you know, and, um, it was this whole kind of revelation of, Hey, um, what do I like now? And it's been so long since I thought about what 
I liked because it was always wrapped up in my husband or wrapped up in, in the church or wrapped up in something else. And so it's been a long, it's been a long process. You know, obviously religion played a huge part in your life up till this point. Um, And it it seems like from, from reading, you know, from your website and and talking to you, it seems like it still plays a big part in your life. Um, But was there any period in which, your faith was hurt by this? Did you, um, you know, I, I guess, where would you say your faith is now? Um, do you still have a relationship with God? Do you, do you feel like you're, you've stepped away from that? Like, where are you at right now? So, um, I, I want to say, and and we're kind of tossing, I was tossing around ideas for the name of the book with a friend Mm -hmm. of mine and, and, um, you know, it was just one of these from legalism to grace or, you know, from something like that. But, you know, um, I, I have to say that it, I was devastated the day that that minister called me and said, you have to choose between taking your now my now ex-husband back and being disciplined out of the church because that's a serious, you know, to me, that was a really serious thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had only known like one other person who had been disciplined out of any independent fundamental Baptist church, um, you know, because they were, and, and from what I understood was they were living in sin and they refused to, to confess and to make, you know, whatever it was right. And, you know, for, for someone to say, look, I had spent my entire life up to that point serving God and doing the best that I could. And now you're disciplining me out of the church, you know, so I have to choose between my faith and, and my life, right? you know, and so I I was devastated. And then I met, um, there was a, when I was in Virginia and I went to, um, when I was working on my master's degree, I met a man and his wife and they, he had just recently taken a church in the area where I was and you know how the gossip grapevine works, right? So <laughs> I got a call from them saying that I would be welcome at their church. And I was pretty shocked by that because at this point I figured I was wearing a scarlet letter and, you know, I was, my ex-husband had made sure that everyone knew that I was leaving him for another man and that I was just crazy. And they called me and said, you're welcome here and we'll make sure you're safe. And I went early because I didn't want to cause a scene. And they met me in the foyer and hugged me and prayed with me. And it was like, wow, you know, there are people who, I don't know, people who care, people who, right. you know, love the, love the sinner, hate the sin kind of thing. But, um, you know, my relationship has really with God has really changed from a, that whole list of do all the do's and don't do all the don'ts to, um, very much more personal. Um, I don't gauge my relationship with God by my attendance at church. Um, you know, just because I don't make, go to church all the time doesn't mean that I don't have a relationship with God. Um, 
I wear earrings that, that hang off the end of my ear, you know, and, and sometimes we take, we take our list of do's and don'ts and we judge people's spirituality. And um, I think that's one of the biggest things that I have learned through all of this is that there were people that I judged their spirituality and I shouldn't have, but God has given me a closer relationship with him because it's now based on grace and, and his love rather than that list of do's and don'ts. No, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you really went from a conditional form of love, very conditional to unconditional, which is, I mean, that's, that story kind of writes itself, you know, and I'm, I'm curious, what prompted you to take all of these experiences and put them into a book? Um, And can you just talk a little bit about what led you to that point and kind of what the goal is of the book? So I will start with, um, you know, sometimes, and I have a friend of mine that I actually met in Hawaii. He was a Marine and he's now a minister in, in Maryland. And we talk about, um, we talk about the idea that God needs Elijah to call down fire. And as a Marine or a, I don't know that you're ever a former Marine, but as a retired Marine who is now a minister, he's more the Elijah calling down fire on the, you know, on the prophets of Baal. Um, I would not consider myself an Elijah. I'm more of a Gideon who, you know, I put out that fleece and go, God, are you sure? And then God gives me the fleece. And then right. I'm like, well, but God, are you really sure? Cause I'm, you know, I'm not really the person no. that you, you know, think I am. And, um, God has not let me get away from this story. So, um, from people who come into my life for even the woman who did the pictures for my website and for the back of the book is going through a um, horrible domestic violence, divorce and separation. And, you know, God brought her into my path and there have been a couple of things that, Oh, I wouldn't have known that about you. You seem so happy. Hmm. And I seem so, like, like there's a peace about you, but yet you went through this. And I said, well, let me share with you about how I got to this place. And so um, you should write that in a book. And, and so I had been kind of playing with the idea, but you know, God doesn't let you get away from what he wants you to <laughs> okay. do. And so kind of like Gideon, um, I wrote it all down, you know, I put it down and then back in January, I was just kind of playing with the idea of maybe I should get a publisher and I don't want to self publish. I really think, you know, a traditional publisher would be better. And, um, I got a call in May from Karis publishing saying, we'd like to publish your book. And Oh, by the way, we'd like it out in October for domestic violence awareness month. And I went, wow. Okay. Then, you know, so, um, when God moves, he moves. <laughs> it, this yeah. isn't like a whirlwind. No, that's um, me. When did you start writing? Um, I started writing this a couple of years ago okay. and I hired like an independent, um, an independent proofreader just to, you know, make it look good. I'm a teacher. Right. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that it was the best that I could, but um, it, that it's, 
it has just been amazing. And um, there were two reasons that I wrote this book. And we kind of talked about the one one before is that um, there are those two ministers that I reached out to. They could have helped me, but they didn't know how. Right. And, and I don't want to say that they didn't. I don't really think that they were malicious at all. Right. right? They were well-meaning. They just didn't know how to deal with the situation that I was presenting them with. You know, they, they just were overwhelmed. And then, um, and even the name of the book, I'll pray for you is a little tongue in cheek. Mm -hmm. Um, because when I went to the home of the head deacon of my church, we had been friends. He had host, he and his wife had hosted our baby shower and shopping and, you know, all the things. And when I went there because I needed a place to stay, I was homeless and I was in hiding and he didn't invite me in and held his arm across the door with, well, you know, he's dangerous and we can't really help you, but I'll pray for you. And I just, remember thinking, okay, but now what do I do? Yeah. You know, so, um, so for the people who could help, but didn't or couldn't for those people to give them something to kind of hang on. And then I know that there are other women and men who might be in my position or find themselves being abused um, it's not as uncommon as we'd like to think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, God gives, God doesn't want his children to be hurt, right? He doesn't want anyone to be, to be abused. Um, he does use the discomfort of testing to help us grow, but that's different from abuse. Right, right. Uh, so, um, yeah, it sounds like, uh, I mean, I resonate a lot with what you're doing is that there is this, there's a lot of really well-intentioned people who don't know how to handle these situations. And um, I, I even find myself in that position sometimes with this show is that, you know, my intentions can be good, but sometimes, sometimes you don't know what to say to someone who's been through something horrific. And sometimes you don't know how to help. And I think it's really important, you know, I was mentioning before we got on, like I've talked to a lot of authors and people who've been putting out their voice. And I think it's so important because, you know, looking at your story, I think it's important for pastors to see it and say like, okay, maybe I shouldn't respond in this way, or maybe I could offer this instead. Um, So your book releases October 30th. Um, Is it available Amazon? Is it anywhere you can basically find books that'll be available or? Absolutely. Well, so I'm a bit confused and I'm not sure, you know, what, what happened there, but, um, okay. so my book was supposed to be released October 30th, but it's on Amazon now, which is oh. amazing. So you can get it on Amazon now. Um, it's available in print and on Kindle, but it's also available like Barnes and Noble and books a million and every place that you can get books, Awesome. you can, you can order it. So I've been really um, awestruck and humbled and, you know, all of the above that God is, God is using my story. And I hope that, you know, and I hope and pray that he can, that he will, you know, challenge 
people to the ones who, you know, have the opportunity to act, but the one, but hope for people who like me find themselves in a, in a terrible situation. Yeah. Well, I think it's definitely going to do that. And I think even just this interview, I think for people listening who, you know, unfortunately identify with the kind of story that you're telling, I think it's going to be a huge help to them. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to pick up a copy. I was looking at the date. So if it's available now, definitely pick up a copy. I'd love to love to check it out and uh, and definitely recommend it. But um, thank you so much for for coming on the show. I'll uh, I'll add links to the book in the show notes so anybody listening can pick up a copy. And I'm definitely excited to see what happens with it over the next couple of months. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Perfect. It was great talking with you. Yeah, good talking to you too. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.